4: Welcome to our Saturday morning podcast. Well, I thought with college football coming up and with all the craziness in politics, we'd bring in our friend Clay Travis. Outkick the coverage on Fox Sports Radio, 6 to 9 a.m. Eastern. Author, podcast host, lock it in on FS1. Let me start with a political question. I've watched both debates. Here's my takeaway. That Barack Obama, among Democrats, is probably the most beloved candidate since JFK. Um, Two years ago, he could have run for re-election, probably won. Uh, He tested through the roof. And yet, in two debates outside of Joe Biden, I've heard nothing but Democratic candidates hammer the most popular Democratic (laughs) president really in my adult life. What does it say? I don't get it. I don't understand it.
1: It's insane to me. Look, I voted for Obama twice. I thought he was an incredibly skilled politician. And, and my theory on Obama is this. If you look at the campaigns that he ran in 2008 and 2012, they were nearly perfection. What he did was he did not sell identity politics, but he got people from all different identities to buy in. And that sounds like it is a little bit complex until you unpack it, but Obama ran a campaign that motivated black people, Hispanic people, Asian people, white people, um, and and certainly uh, gay and lesbian people, all these different identity groups right that are discrete groups. He reached across all those different uh, different dividing lines, and he managed to motivate everybody by appealing to their quintessential uh, belief that America is a great country and that there was an optimistic future for us all. What happened with Hillary Clinton in 2016 was she saw what Obama did, but she lacks his skills as an orator and as a politician. And so she tried to appeal to those same people as different identity groups, right? And so the 2016 election was about Democrats trying to drive up voter interest by appealing specifically and nakedly and without any kind of common core purpose to each of those identity groups. And what I fear we're going to see in 2020 is Trump has taken the identity politics route and he has run with it for a group of marginalized, they believe, uh, you know, lower socioeconomic class white people who frankly used to be the lifeblood of the Democratic Party. And he is trying to motivate them to turn out And then simultaneously, all of the Democratic candidates are trying to motivate their discrete interest groups based on their identity. And my fear is, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe I hope that I am wrong, that the 2020 campaign is going to be the most identity politics laden election of our lives. And no one is going to reach to kind of the larger humanity that connects us all.
4: Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I, I watch it and I think to myself, have we gone, I, I, you know, it's funny, social media has empowered far right and far left. And I've always found myself to be a real moderate, socially more left than right, fiscally more right than left, kind of an independent libertarian to some degree, uh, and it's I find too often. I saw it this week with the Mario Lopez story when he offered a common sense opinion. Oh, it's crazy. It's crazy. And, and it, it, yet uh, Looney Left goes and embraces it and tyranny of the mob ensues. And I and I and I that's what I don't like about social media. It's empowered. It's empowered fringe groups and attack dogs and i think it pulls the democrats far left and it and sometimes it pulls the republicans far right that's why i try to you're more active on it than i am um i mean i i i think it's it's there's too much mob driven discussion don't you ever yeah. worry about that
1: yeah i worry about it all the time um and that's why i branded myself for a long time and still do a radical moderate uh because uh, i am pro choice you know anti the death penalty Uh, But I'm also of the belief that, you know, when someone like Mario Lopez says three-year-olds, we probably shouldn't let them pick their gender, and that's considered controversial. And my perspective is, you know, I've raised three kids now past the age of three so far. We don't let them pick their own food at three years old. The last thing I'm going to let them do is pick their gender identity for the the, the foreseeable future. Um, And so when I see that as being controversial, it isn't an accurate reflection of the real world. And I think a lot of times, not just politicians. I mean, I think it's companies. I think it's people in our industry who are in uh, who are Um I think it is actors and actresses and certainly writers, and authors, and everybody else who's a public figure. If you aren't used to kind of being in the storm, when suddenly you pull out your phone and you pull it out and there are tons of people telling you, screaming at you, that you're the worst human being on earth. I mean, you've been through this and they're defining you based on some small little segment of your overall larger life picture, it's not the way that most people behave. And let me put it to you this way. like in, uh, Imagine you're out to, to Thanksgiving dinner, as everybody you know will do just about in this country, and your family is there. You probably have an aunt or an uncle or a grandma or grandpa that will say something, and you'll be like, you're kind of sucking your teeth, and you're like, whoo. I'm glad we're not on television right now, right. you know, like, uh, it doesn't matter what race or ethnicity or religion or sexuality or anything else you are, people say things that are outside the mainstream of opinion all the time at Thanksgiving dinner. And you don't typically, at least I've never seen it, immediately isolate that person from your family and berate them and all as a group line up against them and you know, and make it worse, right? Like, that's not the way that humans behave. But it is the way that humans behave uh, on social media. And I think it's fundamentally artificial. And there's a great article I read in the uh, Sunday Times last week. Uh, Cass Sunstein, he's a brilliant legal scholar, said that he had been studying apologies. And he had found that every apology in his hypothetical, he had done four different hypotheticals, they all failed. Because when you apologize, the people who like you stop defending you. And the people who hate you Look for more blood because then they're convinced that they're actually right. It's like sharks coming the waters. So the worst thing you can do is apologize for an opinion. Now, if you want to apologize for an act, you know, like I was, I was using an example the other day. I was saying, like, if I'm in the backyard and I'm playing ball with my kids, which I regularly do, and uh, one of them is running from first to second base and I try to tag them, and I hit them and knock them down, and I'm not intending to do that, apologizing for actions is, I think, wholly appropriate. You know, like you knock your kid down in the game like, oh, sorry, bud, I didn't mean to do that. You apologize for an opinion that you actually have. But people can agree or disagree with opinions. There's nothing wrong with opinions, right? In, in the marketplace of ideas, you can combat them, uh, but there's a difference between disagreeing with an opinion and trying to cancel people out, uh, which is, I think, what happens very often on social media with this cancel culture.
4: Clay Travis joining us. Lock it in outside. uh, Outkick the coverage on Fox Sports Radio, 6 to 9 Eastern. Uh, Author, podcast host, friend of our show. All right, let's get to football. Um, College football has a declining attendance issue. Now, uh, college basketball 25 years ago had a robust dynamic following. It is now basically a 3 week sport. It's a bracket more than a sport as the NBA has pulled away. Star driven college basketball, Zion excluded, has virtually no stars. They're there for a year and they leave. I am watching pro football in my opinion pulling away from the NFL. Bama, Clemson, it's becoming very regional, attendance is declining. And I and I I here's what I wonder. Um I don't trust the NCAA because they haven't done it in basketball. They've been very uh, uh, reactive, not proactive. If I ran college football today with this declining attendance issue and this kind of repetitive Alabama-Clemson dominance, I would force teams to play all play 10 conference games. You get one at a conference game in late August. Then you get right into the meat of your schedule. Um, I think that would, uh, you'd own Labor Day. NFL doesn't want to get hum until late September, early October. College football could grab it by the throat. Labor Day weekend, 25 great games. But I don't trust the NCAA to do it. So I guess my question to you is, as a college football diehard, I lean more pro than college, um, is the declining attendance a sign that like college basketball, the NCAA has some holes in their top sport, and they're just not good enough, smart enough to pivot in time to save a lot of its popularity?
1: Yeah, these are good questions. So first of all, on the attendance front, I think this is a problem with the stadiums being too big. Because remember, uh, there are a lot of 100,000, 90,000-seat stadiums in college football. So if attendance drops 2% in a 95,000-seat stadium, it's still a lot more people going to watch a college football game than go to your average NFL stadium where the average stadium is like 65,000 people. I think structurally, the stadiums that were built generations ago in college football don't make sense for our present age. It used to be if you went to a game, you were deciding, I want to go to this game because I don't want to have to listen to it on radio or I don't want to have to read about it the next day in the newspaper. Those are the options that you had. Very few of them were on television, and even fewer of them were on uh, a television station that everybody could get nationwide. I think college football has become so overwhelmingly popular on Saturdays with the total buffet of games. I know you're like me. I sit and watch like 12 hours of college football often. You know, I put it on in the morning, and I'll watch all the way till I go to bed at night. And if I have to choose between sitting on my couch and watching 10 or 12 parts of 10 or 12 great games... Or going to one that might be good, I would rather stay at home on my couch and watch all the games. So I think the stadiums have cut into that they're too big for the current society. If I were building a brand-new stadium right now for college football, I'd make it like 45,000 seats, but I'd make the environment inside that stadium phenomenal so that you wanted to be there. Lazy boy recliners, perfect Wi-Fi, easy to get food and drink, all of those things, okay, so that's one. The other thing I would do, I like uh, the idea of creating, and I think this would be huge, and the challenge is in college football, you've got all these different fiefdoms. The SEC is run separate from the Big Ten, which is different than the ACC and the Big Twelve and the, uh, the Pac twelve. I think we should have conference challenges. I think this this I think would be insanely popular to start the college football season. Imagine if the SEC played the Big 1 to fourteen, and you use the last year's schedules or this year's projections or however you wanted to do it. Seven games in the Big Ten, seven games in the SEC and they played it on opening weekend over a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then closed it out on a Monday. And they awarded a big trophy for whichever conference was better head-to-head. And then you could have the Pac-12 play the Big 12, or you could have the ACC rotate in. I think much like they do this in college basketball, I think it would be an insane success, right? Like Just think about how much attention and talk there would be if 1-14 to the SEC and the Big Ten were going head-to-head every year on the opening weekend of college football. And then later on in the season, you can still have the playoff, which I think should be expanded to eight. I think it would make the opening weekend of college football akin to March Madness because of the total fever pitch that those games would create uh, in conference challenges. So those would be my solutions that they said, Clay Travis, we need a great idea. What would you do? I think a home-and-home seven versus seven uh, uh, and one to fourteen in SEC, Big Ten is something we don't get enough of. We get a little bit of it in bowl season, but I think fans would eat it up
0: like crazy. Thunderstruck, adjective, shocked and amazed by the power of fun on Carnival. Riding Bolt, the world's first roller coaster at sea. Brian got thunderstruck so hard his 93-year-old grandmother felt it 3,000 miles away in Nebraska and immediately booked a cruise.
5: Hooray!
0: Get thunderstruck starting at 289. Carnival. Choose one. Cruises are in U.S. dollars per person, double occupancy. Taxes, fees, and port expenses additional. Restrictions apply. Full details on carnival.com. Ships registry, Bahamas, Panama.
5: Look through your children's eyes to see the true magic of a forest. It's a storybook world for them. You look and see a tree. They see the wrinkled face of a wizard with arms outstretched to the sky. They see treasure and pebbles. They see a windy path that could lead to adventure. And they see you we reconnect with each other. The forest is closer than you think. Find a forest near you and start exploring at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.
4: Uh, U.S. women's soccer, um, a very dominant. Um, and there has been some discussion about should they be paid more than men? So I always have this theory. When I go to a movie, Clay, it doesn't matter if the movie is an hour and a half or 215. I the actors shouldn't be paid based on length of film. If I like the movie, um it doesn't matter how long it is. That's why Serena Williams only plays 3 sets at Wimbledon, but makes what the guys do playing 5 sets it doesn't bother me cuz I'd rather watch Serena than all but about 3 men's tennis players, Federer, Djokovic and all. Serena, she's she is to me, in the top four most captivating tennis players in the world. Now, soccer is different. Um, The Men's World Cup, I can watch the United States or 15 other teams. I love Brazil. I love Argentina. I love England. I love Germany. I'll watch Chile. I'll watch Mexico. In the Women's World Cup, boy, outside of the United States, I pretty much watched England and France because I thought they had a chance to play the United States. So men's soccer, we have a men's professional league in America, is much more popular than women's soccer. But what do we do now when we do have a dominant women's national team um, that is, to a lot of people, more fascinating than our flailing, disorganized, um, low-energy men's team? Let's talk about the pay issue which surfaced this week Uh, I don't know if USA Soccer put it out, but let's talk about that because I I tend to be a believer, listen, if you have a great female team or athlete and they get me to a theater, I have no problem paying them as much or more as guys, even though guys generally, commerce is driven in American sports mostly by men's teams, right? Mostly. Yes. Um, So your thoughts about the article that came out or the release this week about the pay in the United States women's soccer team?
1: Well, let's start here. The reason why our U.S. women dominate is because they have global human rights in America that most women don't have around the world. So as you said, like great male athletes, even in poor countries, are discovered and developed because there's substantial economic value associated with it, right? So if you are growing up poor in Africa and you are an incredible athlete and you get a soccer ball on your foot, there's a decent chance they will find you if you are male. Not necessarily the same thing if you are female. Same thing in the Middle East, certainly, where women just got the right to drive cars, for instance, in Saudi Arabia, and women have to wear pants to play soccer and, and, and hijabs in, in Iran, and we're not allowed to go watch games in person. So our resources and wealth allow us to develop women's talents in soccer In a way that most of the rest of the world, outside of the incredibly industrialized and wealthy countries of Europe, like you mentioned, France and England, which don't even care, at least historically, have not anywhere near as much about women's soccer either. So that is one reason why our women dominate. Uh, They are not competing with all of the other women in the rest of the world because the rest of the women in the world don't have the same rights and opportunities as our women do. Uh, In men's uh, sports, we tend to still find all the best athletes, which is why the competition level is higher for men's World Cup than women's World Cup. But let's go to the data points. because There are lots of people who just want to yell arguments, and it's opinions and it's fine. But one of the things that troubles me in society today is you need to have an underpinning, at least factually, to support your argument. You understand this. Sports fans understand this. If I come on and you're arguing LeBron versus uh, Jordan, and I say, well, Jordan won 12 championships and LeBron's only got one. Automatically, you're not going to believe me because my basic facts are wrong, right? So my opinion of who's better, you don't support because you know that the facts are wrong. Jordan's got six, LeBron's got three. Well, uh, here are some stats that U.S. soccer put out. Now, I'm saying that I am believing that these are true. They say they've been financially audited statements. over, And, and so, you know, it's not like I'm an accountant, so I have to assume that what they're putting out is, in fact, accurate and done in a uh, legitimate fashion. This is what they put out from U.S. soccer. Uh, U.S. women in the last decade made $34.1 million. The U.S. men made $26.4 million. So over the last decade, the women's soccer team has made 56.4% of all revenues that have been paid to players. The men have made 43.6%. Now, what about the, the revenue that they produce? According to U.S. soccer, the men have produced $185.7 million in revenue, averaging just shy of a $1 million per game. The women have produced $101.3 million in revenue, averaging just shy of $425,000 a game. Now, the way that that would break down is the men are roughly producing about two-thirds of the revenue that comes into the U.S. Soccer Federation and the women are receiving over 56% of the money. So when I see these numbers, which, by the way, were collectively bargained independently by both the men and the women, the women are full-time employees. They also get health and care. Healthcare. They get you know insur- uh, health insurance. They get uh, sick leave. They get the ability to start 401ks. The men have financial viability outside of the U.S. men's team, right? They can play MLS if they're great. They can play overseas and make millions of dollars. They don't want to be full time employees. That's because the Men's World Cup produced $6 billion in revenue. The Women's World Cup produced around a billion, sixty 60 to 1, 100 million, yeah. 60 to 1. So all these numbers militate towards the U.S. men produce more revenue. The women are already making more money. It's a function of market economics more than it's a function of anything.
4: Yes, I agree. Uh, that's why I stayed out of this. Uh, when I when, when people started talking about this, uh, my takeaway was always oh, from – because I've been kind of a soccer nerd for the last seven or eight years, and I've met uh, commissioners of the MLS, uh, some people with USA Soccer, and the story behind the story was the men's revenue in soccer is uh, substantially, not marginally, yep. substantially higher And therefore, uh, that's why, you know, the reality is it pays more to be average for our guys than to be outstanding for women when it comes to World Cup soccer. That's just the market economics in play. That's, That's how commerce works. By the way, you know, for years and years, there are all sorts of businesses where I can be, you know, I'll give you one. An average female supermodel will make 10 times more than a wildly successful male model. Yes. Because women drive fashion, and women drive that industry. You can be the 75th most coveted female supermodel in the world, and you'll make substantially more than the third most popular male model. And, 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 and I do think, to a large degree, men and their viewership and consumption of sports drive sports. 80% of my audience is men. Uh, 99% of sports betting is by men. Not saying it's right. Uh, That's that's just the reality of our sports world, right?
1: Yeah. Look, I mean, market economics explain many things that people want to attribute to uh, political-based factors. Most of the time, if you get— I used to have an econ teacher, and he said, you know, People like to talk about white, black, brown, yellow, whatever skin color you want to focus on with somebody. The one that matters the most is green. And when you actually look at the money that that is produced in the soccer universe, uh, that's where the value is. Now, uh, look, you you talked about modeling. I mean, there are other examples, right? Like right now, uh, it's fascinating to see how the live music industry has exploded, right? Right. There's never been a better time if you're one of the superstars to be able to go out on uh, the road and perform. Women, Taylor Swift, Beyonce, uh, Rihanna, you can run through a lot of the top female acts, they are dominating. Like if you look at the revenue that they produce, um, same thing with writing, right? Like women buy a lot more books on average than men do. And as a result, if you look for instance at the fiction bestseller list, it's almost all female based because for whatever reason they connect better with the audience that is buying books. So Market-based economy uh, economics explain almost everything here, and I think again, sometimes, oftentimes in our society, as you mentioned, where it's so polarizing, people want the world to bend to the way that they see the world, and so they choose to have opinions that don't necessarily reflect reflect the underlying facts.
4: Clay Travis, great talking to you. Can't wait for college football, buddy. Thanks for coming on.
1: Amen. You and me both. Can't wait to start gambling on football again.
0: Clay Travis, thanks, bud. Cruises are in U.S. dollars per person, double occupancy. Taxes, fees, and port expenses additional. Restrictions apply. Full details on Carnival.com. Ships registry, Bahamas, Panama.
5: Oh, 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 O'Reilly.
0: You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability.